the mental factor of ignorance or delusion is the core uh, a problem. Like you, you, you can't have anger or greed without ignorance in the background. Uh, uh, and you can eliminate through spiritual pursuits, you can eliminate anger, aspects of anger and, and aspects of greed, but you can never be enlightened if you don't get to the root, which is uh, ignorance or delusion. And so there's a way of understanding even the Four Noble Truths and, you know, the Second Noble Truth that we usually think of as the, the cause of suffering, being craving or thirst or whatever. But from the Abhidhamma perspective, the cause of suffering, the root cause is ignorance or delusion. Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. My name is Lily Cushman and I produce this podcast. We're coming to you today with episode 220, continuing our real life series on the podcast. This series is in celebration of Sharon's new book by the same name, Real Life. And we've been exploring many of the different themes from the book, moving from contraction to expansion, the larger journeys and cycles we take. And for today's episode, we are so delighted to welcome back Mark Epstein. Mark has been on the podcast a couple times before. He's an old friend, an old colleague of Sharon's. If you don't know his work, you're in for quite a treat. I'll let Sharon read his full bio for you at the start of the interview, but just to say that Sharon and Mark have been friends since, I think, 1975 when they met at Naropa, and recently Mark sent us a photo of that first summer at Naropa, and everybody just had incredible hair, so young. So Mark is a psychiatrist. He's a longtime Buddhist seeker, practitioner, A lot of his books include different themes and teachings of the Dharma, and he has just an incredible way of synthesizing, both from the Western lens of mental health and psychology, psychiatry, and also the Eastern approach to these aspects of the human experience. So it's a wonderful conversation. It's a treat to have Mark back on the podcast. Before we dive in, a couple of quick announcements. We are excited to announce one of Sharon's books is being re-released this month on August 1st, Love Your Enemies, which is a book she co-authored with the venerable Robert Thurman, Bob Thurman. And this book originally came out 10 years ago and the new edition celebrating the 10-year anniversary has just been released this week. If you're listening to this at a later date, that is the week of August 1st, 2023. And this is a book that in some ways was ahead of its time. It feels like perfect medicine for these very polarizing times. It is focusing on working with both inner and outer enemies. And I put enemies in quotation marks because that is the common translation to the word from the Buddhist teachings in Pali or 
in Sanskrit. And so it's a very interesting approach to working with both people who are in our lives that we feel really challenged by or in conflict with, but also in our internal landscape, aspects of ourselves that we may have such challenges with or just not be able to maybe integrate into our full being. So it's a wonderful offering and we're excited to have this new edition coming into the world. It has a new introduction and yeah, let us know how you like the book. This apparently is the year of many book releases. <laughs> so we're enjoying the journey of that this year. And if you'd like to get a copy of that book, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com or just check out any of the places that you normally get your books. Amazon, The Bookshop, which is a great retailer that sources local bookstores or your local library. Okay, let's dive into today's episode number 220 of the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg and the wonderful Mark Epstein. Welcome back to The Summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm very pleased to welcome my longtime friend and colleague, really long time friend and colleague, Mark Epstein, MD, to talk with me about the journey from isolation to freedom. Mark is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City. He's a longtime Buddhist practitioner and received his undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University. Mark is the author of several books that explore the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Psychotherapy Without the Self, The Trauma of Everyday Life, and Advice Not Given. His latest work, The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life, was released in January 2022 by Penguin Press. Hello, Mark. Sharon. The so passage of time. We knew each other when we were very young people. Yeah. We, 19, summer of 1974. Yes, right. Before I turned 21. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So just a few years ago. A few years ago. There you go quickly. <laughs> so uh, to begin with, you come to both therapy and mindfulness meditation as a practitioner, as a seeker, so to speak. And yeah. I'm curious if you could describe what put you on the path and what helped you find your footing on that path. Well, I came to, uh, I came to mindfulness and to Buddhism really before I came to, uh, uh psychotherapy. Um, so that, that was an unusual way to start in our culture at that time um, because mindfulness was not uh, everywhere the way it's, you know, uh, it's not everywhere yet either, but it's more everywhere. It's more somewhere now. Um, uh, uh, I first heard about it my, my freshman year in college. I took an introduction to world religion class uh, and the whole first semester was about Eastern religion and the 
whole second semester was about Western religion. Uh, the Eastern religion part, the the little module on Buddhism, uh, uh, the text was the Dhammapada. And uh, there were uh, uh, verses in the Dhammapada that went straight into my heart or into my mind, you know, about uh, how unwieldy the mind is, you know, how we're, the anxious mind is like a, a fish flapping on dry ground, you know? Uh, and I was like, oh, that that's like, that's definitely me. Um, so that sort of uh, oriented me towards Buddhism. And then uh, I kept coming upon it. I, I was taking psychology classes uh, and uh, 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 Dan, Danny Goleman, uh, Daniel Goleman was a, uh, section person, a graduate student in a psychophysiology class. And uh, he had already been to India with Ramdas. Uh, maybe you knew him already at this point. This w- would have been 1972 or something. Um, but uh, he, I sensed something in him uh, that uh, uh, I knew I wanted more of. Um, and it wasn't explicit, but, but it was something coming off of him. And uh, uh, I did my best to make friends with him outside of class and and said, I want to know what you know, you know. And he said, oh, if you want to know what I know, you should go out to Boulder this summer or next summer because my friends uh, will all be teaching there. Uh, and uh, so I did. And that's where I met you and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield and Ramdas. And uh, so so that and that was a huge immersion. You know, that was like right away I could practice. Uh, because I had teachers, and that uh, that summer, and then the experiences that followed on that summer, doing doing uh, retreats uh, um, before the before you founded uh, uh, IMS, you know, but the early retreats in Mendocino and in Bucksport and in Great Barrington. Uh, gave me enough, like I felt like, oh, this is a real thing, this meditation. It's not just something I'm reading about. It's something that something I can access, you know. And that actually gave me the, the uh, you might say the freedom or the uh, self-confidence to uh, 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 pursue the study of Western psychotherapy. I felt like I already had something. But before all that, I, I felt like I had nothing. I didn't know who or what I was. And now after those retreats and so on, I was much more comfortable with not knowing who or what I was. And I thought, oh, that's a stance I can take that to help other people. Um, and so that that led me into the psychotherapy world, which, you know, I, I can talk about if you ask me another question. Um, but but I, that was a whole. So then I had parallel paths that kept um it kept interacting, you know, which is still still going on, those interactions. So I did know Danny. Um, I met him toward the end of 1970 in India, and he's the one who told me about this meditation retreat he was going to in January of 1971 uh, in Bodhgaya, India, and that was my first retreat. So he's sort of been like the Pied Piper. Wow. Any number of people. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. Yeah, much merit that Dan Goldman. Yeah, yeah. Crude. Um, so I quote you. I hope you actually said this, as saying uh, 
sometimes that therapy is like meditating out loud. Is that true? Did you say that? Um, I hope so. But, yeah. but now that you've quoted me as saying that, let's assume yes. I definitely have always approached therapy as a dynamic meditation, as a two-person, as an interpersonal meditation. That that was really my uh, my frame for it because uh, I, I came into it by going to medical school, which is a weird way to become a therapist because mostly what you learn in medical school is not any, has nothing to do with therapy. But then um, when, when you do a psychiatry rotation, which is how you first get access in medical school, you know, for a month you go around with the psychiatrist and you pretend to be one and they um they give you uh they give you a patient or two to be therapist because it's like in surgery you know you you learn surgery by by stitching up at the end of an operation or uh you learn medicine by seeing a patient and figuring out which antibiotic to give so they follow that same thing with psychiatry so uh, okay, you're a medical student, but you're going to be the psychiatrist. So all of a sudden, I was in a room with a patient, with, and I had very little training other than being on meditation retreats. And by that time, I'd been in therapy myself, so I knew how to imitate my therapist. But but really, uh, alone in the room with a patient, what did I have to draw on about being a therapist? And mostly, I had my experience in meditation, and I remember thinking. If I can give this person, you know, the same kind of attention or close enough, the same kind of attention that I've learned to give to my own mind, then uh, hopefully that'll be therapeutic. Um, and uh, she ended up liking me. And I, and, I, and I think in that month, I only had a month of pretending to be a, a psychiatrist, but I think in that month I helped her a little bit. And, uh, and that, but that stayed with me as a, as a kind of premise for being a therapist. Mm-hmm. I was talking to uh, Barbara Fredrickson the other day in another context, and she was telling me about research that is considered kind of uh, more cutting edge right now, which is about therapy, uh, which is about meditation uh, and its effect on someone else, you know? Oh, interesting. Kind of in this, in this duo role. Um, and I thought of your quotation, actually. Yeah, I always thought, you know what? This uh, latest book that I wrote was um, uh, like a um, uh, uh, a description of a year's worth of therapy cases. So I was trying to talk about, uh, everyone always wants to know, how do you bring Buddhism, how do you bring mindfulness into your practice? And I was, was always evading the question because I, I always thought if it's in me, if I'm if it's real in me, it should come out in some way. But then I, I tried in the book to just show how ordinary therapy is, you, you know, and yet at the same time, is there, could there be some kind of transmission, you know, am, am I, uh, uh, Freud always talked about the uh, therapy, psychoanalysis as being uh, one unconscious reflecting uh, another unconscious, the way the newly invented telephone uh, worked, you know, with vibrations uh, 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 communicating between people. So he was into the unconscious uh, vibrations uh, reverberating between therapist and patient. And I, I wonder, I think something like that, you know, might go on, although we, we call it the, the, the uh, placebo effect, you know, <laughs> scientific term for it. 
Well, wasn't uh, is it Bion or Beyond the Beyond? W R Beyond Beyond Wilfred Beyond. Yeah. So can you explain his theory? I mean, because it's something almost like an extension of that, right? It's like the space created. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Beyond was a famous uh, British psychoanalyst who was actually born in India. Um, and he was Samuel Beckett's psychoanalyst. So he's, he's got a good, he's got a good history. Uh, and, uh, he's the person that I stole the line, uh, thoughts without a thinker from that, that, that came from him. But, uh, he, he wrote a lot about the interpersonal space that's created between, uh, uh, patient and therapist and about the unconscious transmissions and what came to be called a, a projective identification. So the way that a, a therapist might be feeling something, but that feeling might not be, belong actually to the therapist. It might be an aspect, something that the patient uh, is feeling but can't quite deal with. So it's by by some uh, mysterious process, it's uh, uh, excommunicated from the patient, but put into the body of the therapist who then has to discover it. Um, and that, that's a, you know, for, for, uh, how scientific psychoanalysis has tried to be, that's a very important concept, uh, uh, in psychoanalysis that, that, uh, events like that can happen. Transmissions like that can happen. Mm. Why can't it go the other way, you know, but. Mm. Well, you know, I'm like, uh, fascinated by your college thesis. <laughs> I've remembered it all these years, you know, and. <laughs> Uh, which was on Buddhist psychology. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you were drawn to that approach right away, if it was your early exploration of psychology that just made sense. How did you even access it? Well, my my college thesis that you're re- remembering was on Abhidhamma, uh, which is the, the Buddhist psychology, like the, the chemistry of the mind. It, it takes the mind and, and divides it into... Um, 52 or 50, it depends on the which tradition of Buddhism, but into something greater than 50 mental factors. And it talks about our, our everyday experience as basically the patterning of the mental factors. And then how that patterning changes with meditation, you know, which, which uh, helpful or wholesome mental factors are, are accentuated in meditation and which ones are diminished and how that changes with the different insights that come in uh, advanced meditation. And you know, you're fascinated by it because the, not the first summer at Naropa, but the second summer at Naropa, when Danny Goldman didn't come at the last minute and he asked me to uh, help teach a course that you and Jack were teaching, uh, all I had to go on was my uh, was my thesis. Um, but so what I did in my thesis was basically go to the basement of the of Widener Library, which was the the big uh, uh, Harvard Library, where in those days you could still get get to the books. It wasn't all digitized, and they had an incredible like shelves and shelves of uh, um, uh, books by uh, mostly German Jewish uh, um, uh, explorers of Theravada Buddhism, who had uh, escaped uh, Austria and Germany uh, in the 30s and gone to uh, Sri Lanka and India. Uh, uh, One man named uh, 
a Sigmund Feninger who became known as uh, Nyanaponika Terra, you know, who wrote a great book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, and another one named uh, uh, Jnana Taloka. But anyway, all these books that described Buddhist psychology, described the Abhidhamma, uh, were sitting in the basement of Widener and had never been taken out. And uh, I had Danny Goldman as my thesis advisor. And uh, at Naropa, I, was, I had started taking courses already, not just with uh, you and Jack and Joseph and Ramdas, but also with a guy named Stephen Goodman, who uh, went on to become a professor in, in uh, California, uh, who had studied with Herbert Gunther. So the Abhidhamma stuff was out there, and I needed a thesis. And I thought, Buddhist psychology, what could be better? Um, so I tried to make sense of it. And I spent that, my, then my senior year at, uh, in college, uh, trying to make sense of the Abhidhamma. And I was just putting it together for myself. Um, but I think I did make pretty good sense of it. And uh, it was useful. Uh, it's been useful for me in all of my writing. It's like a foundational thing, you know, that um, uh, ignorance, for instance, uh, ignorance or delusion, uh, the mental factor of ignorance or delusion is the core uh, a problem. Like you, you, you can't have anger or greed without ignorance in the background. Uh, uh, and you can eliminate through spiritual pursuits, you can eliminate anger, aspects of anger and, and aspects of greed, but you can never be enlightened if you don't get to the root, which is uh, ignorance or delusion. And so there's a way of understanding even the four noble truths and, you know, the second noble truth that we usually think of as the, the cause of suffering, being craving or thirst or whatever. But from the Abhidhamma perspective, the cause of suffering, the root cause is ignorance or delusion. And that's ignorance or delusion about the self, which is what brings in the... Uh, the psychological element, you know, that we all, that what it is that we cling to at, at, in fundamentally is the sense of ourselves as separate, isolated, alone, but also concrete, real, more real than we actually are. And that, and so then that sets up a battle between us and the world, you know, where basically on some level, deep down, it's us against the world or the world against us. And so we're bound to lose. And that's where the suffering, you know. So I found all that incredibly helpful um, as I pursued both being a therapist and a student of meditation. Well, you know, the through line is, is really, I think, that that whole system of psychology, in a way, is set up to help answer the question, how can there be thoughts without a thinker? Yeah. Like, how can this entire universe of appearances arise without anything substantial, anything that could be clung to, anything that is stable or lasting. It's like, how did that happen? I know. Right. Why isn't there just like nothing? Yeah. Yeah. But it's something. But it's something. Something and nothing. Yeah. 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 You know, so it's, it's a really interesting system to, to explore, you know? And so. Yeah. Thank you for your thesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I did was it's all it, it was all there already. You, yeah. you know, that's the uh, um and I also found it very helpful as I did more retreats with you guys, um, because it's not like 
my experiences totally matched up with what it said in the progress of insight, you know, Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, and how it's supposed to be. Uh, but it's not that different either, you, you know. So, so the fact that there's a roadmap or a cartography, you know, for what, uh, what happens in the mind if you learn to leave it alone, that it re- that 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 idea of self liberation, you, you know, is actually mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not just made up, you, you know, it it seems to be true, uh, uh, true to the extent that it can be written about and described. I mean, that's incredible. Well, some of those um, mental factors, let's say, as they would put it, uh, have the nature when we are lost in them, when we're um, kind of when we take them to heart, when we identify with them, not just through their sheer arising, but when we have that kind of relationship with them. So many experiences and emotions and perceptions, if we are lost in them, cause us to constrict. Our world gets very small. We shut down. It's painful, as you say. Um, we feel isolated, you know, we feel all alone. And uh, it's very powerful, I think, to make that exploration, to understand that that's in their nature, and also that we can have a different relationship to them. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite ones is the mental factor of conceit, Yeah. Uh, which if you if you look at the definition, uh, the, the Buddhist definition of conceit, it has to do with comparing. Uh, so this comparing self with other or comparing one's own experience with other people's experience. And, and they say that uh, uh, that's one of the hardest things to eliminate. One of the final fetters when they have these lists, the Abhidhamma is full of these lists. They have these lists of the, of the last fetters and conceit is one of the final fetters. You know, you can get rid of, of uh, greed and lust and anger and so on, but there's still that thing of comparing your spiritual attainment with somebody else's, you know, uh, or uh, how much money you're making versus uh, how much someone else is making, you, you know, like that's, that, that's really hard to eliminate. And that, those kinds of, those, those, those kinds of uh, insights are uh, like just to be discovered in a 2000 year old text is pretty incredible. Yeah. And, you know, discovered in our own minds when we, yeah, And I found it helpful to have some kind of reference. Like I know one of the characteristics of anger, for example, is persecution. Yeah. And especially if I look at anger at myself when I'm really angry at myself and yeah. there is that kind of merciless persecuting quality. Yeah. yeah. I think, oh, look at that. Like an enemy so who's gotten his chance. That's what they say. Like an enemy who has gotten his chance. Yeah. But they also say you should regard anger as like stale urine mixed with poison. <laughs> Yeah, not really a champion of anger. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I think there's a place for it. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I I, I shouldn't say, of course, <laughs> it's not that obvious. But um, we, uh, I think, it, you know, for me, it comes back to, in part, that understanding of relationship, you know, when we are burdened by kind of the chronic anger and dissatisfaction. And uh, that's one thing, you know, it's quite another thing when we we can have some perspective on it. and kind of use the energy of it in a way. Yeah. You heard that thing. I always quote this thing that Thich Nhat Hanh said, uh, or that I made up that Thich Nhat Hanh said, which, which is um, to hold anger like a baby. Yeah, that's, he did say that. 
Um, but I always think, oh, there's two ways to, you know, it could be hold anger like a baby, or it could be hold anger the way a baby does, which is like just to, you know, not to be attached to what a terrible person I am for being so angry, you know, but let it, let it liberate itself. You know? Yeah. Well, that comes back to, in my mind, to mindfulness and add-ons, you know, like there are ways we can experience, say, an emotion um, that does add a, an element of isolation to it and shame and and despair, you know, like, why is this still here after 50 years of meditating and all that money in psychotherapy, <laughs> you know, or we can experience it in a very different way. Yeah, that's good about the add-ons. I never heard you say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to experience it purely and... and yeah. Um, one of my one of my patients who I quote in this book goes to see Ramdas before before Ramdas died, and confesses to Ramdas all these they weren't angry thoughts they were like lustful thoughts like when he's on the subway he's like sizing up all the people on the subway like who who's attractive who isn't attractive who would he like to sleep with etc. and he's sort of ashamed but he's but but still he doesn't want to give up the the thing. Uh, and he's telling Ramdas about all this, and Ramdas says to him first, "Love the thoughts, you know, like love the thoughts," which is so so radical, I think. Uh, but goes along with the, like the sort of the no add-ons, I think, what you're implying. <laughs> and that, and then he says, "If you if you love the thoughts, maybe you'll start to see yourself as a soul." You know, not the other, not not the you know, not the people he's he's evaluating, but um, see yourself as a soul. Love the thoughts, and maybe you'll see yourself as a soul. And I thought, I thought that was so uh, profound. You know, so not what you would anticipate. Yeah. You know, either front. You you know, um, so I thought that was really Ramdas at, at his best, but coming out of out of our tradition too, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I always also considered Ramdas a really great therapist, you know, and uh, in a way it's like, if your therapist loves you anyway, despite that disgusting thing you just yeah. told them, yeah, you know, and you go, Oh, look at that. There's love in the world, even for such as I, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's one of the great things about therapy. Is that, yeah. You know, anything goes and yeah. yeah. And the, it, it's the underlying relationship that's holding the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so. And so meditation could be seen perhaps as doing it for oneself. Or maybe. I think so. Well, I think, I think meditation is like a second chance <laughs> at, uh, at um, uh, being with the real you, you, you know, in, in all of your, like Joseph's thing about your crooked heart, you, you know, whatever that, he always quotes that line. Uh, uh, um, but being, being with, with the, the whole, the, the real you in all of your complexity, um, that we wish our parents, you know, uh, uh, could have, uh, uh, you know, totally accepted and helped us, you know, but, uh, and they did enough that we get to have a second chance, you know, mm -hmm. um, but that then we can learn to do something similar, for our own minds, you know, which is, I think, basically creating an environment, uh, a loving environment, uh, um, and a loving and accepting uh, and inquisitive and curious environment uh, in which we can 
um, be with ourselves. So, so I have a quite you, you know the 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 famous Buddha the uh, last words, or they weren't really his last words, but they were his almost last words. Be a uh, an island unto yourself. Be a light, or be a lamp unto yourself. Or, like, yeah. The same, like, uh, which one is it? Or is it the same word as translate? Well, is it probably is deeper, right? That's the word, which means light. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I really like that. Be a lamp unto yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? But but an island. Is it's too isolated. Well, I don't know if it's too. I, I think that speaks to you to the topic also of yeah. you know what, uh, isolation and aloneness yeah, yeah, and loneliness yeah. and uh, making that okay. But I just find find it curious that. It, that it could go either way. Yeah, you that's know. right. And I think, you know, like in our time, well, there are two things that are coming to my mind. One is uh, back in the day when we were teaching together physically in the same room. Yeah. Which who knows, maybe that'll come up I again. Know, we can so do it again. We should do it again. Um, and you would often quote uh, D.W. Winnicott, who was a British psychoanalyst of, I guess, the 50s, right? Yeah, 40, and 50. one of his uh, great lines was "Be a good enough mother." Yeah, and you would always say, kind of parenthetically, that it was the women who were always presenting with the kids, and that's why it's not just like good yes. enough parent. Yes, but be a good enough mother, and someone would always raise their hand and say, "What's a good enough mother?" And you would say, "Someone who can survive their child's rage." Yeah, and then they'd say, "What does it mean to survive your child's rage?" Yeah, and you'd say, "Neither getting too like invasive." nor too distant. Yeah. And I would always then say, well, that's like mindfulness. Totally. It's right there. It's what you're describing is this kind of loving environment that is holding yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I always, when, when I've been on retreat often and I, you know, alone in one of those little rooms at the forest refuge um, and setting my, setting myself up for my practice and, uh, sometimes this phrase from the sutras would come to me, uh, which was like, the monk sits cross-legged and places his mindfulness before him. And, and, and I always thought, you know, I have a lot of time to contemplate that phrase when I'm, when I'm sitting there all alone. So he places his mindfulness before him. Like, like, it's like, that's such a, you know, like, like I was thinking of it like a vase that you put there, but, but that, that it's, um, a sensibility that you can wear, you know, or that you can uh, uh, make, fill the room with, you, you know, and that, and enter, that you can enter. Um, and that's like the good enough mother thing, you know, like, like what's great about Winnicott it could, because he talked directly to parents, he didn't use like fancy language. He was so the the good being a good enough mother was like, you know, you already have it in you is what he's trying to say, you know, and just not retaliating and not abandoning in the face of what's difficult. The most difficult thing being the child's anger, but it could be anything, you know. Um, he, he's saying that's the the he called it the facilitating environment that a parent naturally creates for a child out of love and devotion, you know, but the facilitating environment is what allows the child to, to be themselves. And, and I think that's exactly when we taught together and you would see the, the parallels that that's exactly what 
mindfulness, what meditation is doing for us, creating the facilitating environment in which, you know, our own minds can grow. Yeah. And therapy maybe can come along, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about the kind of just the times we are in where not everyone was completely isolated in the last three years, but many were. And, and people who weren't, who were still working, for example, outside the home or, or going out, experienced often another kind of isolation in that the church maybe they were used to going to was not a possibility or or the concert they would go to to lift their spirits was not a possibility. And um, maybe they couldn't visit their parents yeah. uh, because of some vulnerability. And uh, I don't know to what degree we've emerged, you know, I mean, physically or in terms of uh, relationship and gatherings for many people, though not everybody that's shifted. And, uh, and yet, you know, like what a time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because for some people, probably a minority, but, but for, for some people that withdrawal, that pulling back was experienced as incredibly enriching and rewarding mm-hmm. in a surprising way, you know, because the busyness of life uh, was taken away. And, and so the, uh, the openness and freedom really of not having to rush and being, you know, like being able to go out for a walk and ha- and really see what the spring, that first spring of the pandemic, you know, uh, being able to see uh, with everything. So no cars on the road, no people, just the flowers emerging, you, you know. Um, so I think for some people, it, it, it was a boon. For, but for many, many people, the uh, uh, being being thrust back on oneself was a real challenge. Um, and I think uh, made people appreciate uh, actually what, what uh, uh, they had heretofore taken so much for granted. I think that's the, that's sort of the, uh, the nice thing about now, even though no one has figured out if the pandemic is really over or not over, but people have sort of decided it's over. So that, so the, uh, the first experiences of uh, going to a cultural event, going to the movies, going out to dinner inside, seeing friends and family. I mean, that's been going on for a while for a lot of people. But but I think there's a kind of renewed appreciation, uh, similar to what happens when you come out of a meditation retreat and, you know, you have your first uh, uh, conversation uh, or you go back home and it's like everything is so much brighter, you know? Um, so I think there's some, there's been some nice things that have come from it. But sometimes just the sheer intensity of an experience as us feel isolated, we can't quite believe that anyone would understand or that it happens to other people or, you know, there's that's, a kind of specialness true. we feel. Yeah. that That's one of the things that we've all been through this together. Um, so it, so as much as we've all been isolated, there's also a kind of universal thing that, that, um, uh, uh, was really a shared experience that I think people are in a hurry to forget, but everything I've read about the, the flu pandemic, you know, of whenever that was 1918, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, so many people died and everything, but the, 
but uh, when it was over, everyone just like rushed forward, you know, and and rarely looked back. I think I think there's going to be something similar, or there is already something similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things about I think that journey from isolation to connection or constriction and narrowness to freedom is that it's not a straight line. You know, we go up and we, I mean, we, we know that. I mean, I certainly entered meditation thinking there's going to be the, the breakthrough experience. And after that, you know, there will just be, it'll all be fine. You know, it'll be just fine. And yeah. it's just not like that. There were breakthrough experiences. Though. There were definitely breakthrough experiences. Yeah. And then sometimes yeah. things were hard again. Yeah. You know? yeah. Because yeah. that's just the and nature then, of things. And it makes you question like, what, like, Wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. But that's it. But that so much insight comes from that, you, you know, re- realizing that it's so much more complicated, you, you know, or so much simpler than than what we think. So I was at a very, very early conference on Buddhism and psychotherapy, I guess is what it was. And uh, Jack Angler was one of the people on my panel. and. Um, and there was a Tibetan Lama and at one point the question went to Jack of like, have you ever written a, a care plan or a, a treatment goal? I don't know what the actual language is. Treatment plan. Yeah. A treatment plan for somebody where like the goal would be that they, um, uh, help other people, you know, that, that they have kind of kindness, acts of kindness and, right. and service. And he said, well, no, <laughs> you know. It's not like that. So I was just curious about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they, the field doesn't think that way. Uh, uh, you know, uh, being able to engage in activities of daily living—that that that would be about as close as uh, anyone would come in a treatment plan. Or for 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 um, uh, people in a family with a family, being able to uh, go back and care for one's children or one's spouse or one's parents or whatever that that could be part of it that's um but uh no well you know our society we we're we're such an individual uh individually oriented society that uh, uh being able to get back to work is more the uh mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, those early conferences were good, you know. Yeah. They brought together so many people trying to figure out how these things could go together. I remember I remember there was one that R.D. Lang came to. Um and and uh he said uh, uh we're all afraid of three things. Uh each other, our own minds and death. I thought, "Oh, R.D. Lang, you know." Yeah, really. There we go. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happens, of course, in any kind of introspection is we we look at what we're afraid of. It comes up. We look at what's painful. And that, of course, is not easy, but it seems to be the liberating factor, you know, is that we're not kind of dancing around it or avoiding it or or engaging in some behavior to not have it be so, so upfront and whatever it is. It's like, there it is. Yeah. And uh, in therapy, of course, there's the therapist who's accompanying you on that on that journey. In meditation, perhaps you have a teacher or a community who are also accompanying you, or perhaps you feel very alone. 
in doing that, but it, it seems to me it's a similar process of. Yeah. Um, with, with similar, um, uh, uh, potential, um, uh, uh, obstacles or difficulties. Like, do you think it's possible? Do you, have you seen people using meditation to hide from what scares them? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same with therapy. Yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's the tricky thing, I think, to, to allow yourself to settle into where, where the fear really is. Yeah. I mean, I feel, um, incredibly lucky and having had really good teachers, you know? Yeah. But, uh, it's certainly easy because there's, there's so many different levels. I mean, I find that as a writer, you know, as I'm sure you do as well, just writing about these things. Um, it's so easy to kind of veer off into, uh, it's all bright and wonderful. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. uh, when you're writing about love yeah, and to sort of say, Oh, there's this side too, you know, and, this is inevitable and it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong and, and it's okay. It's you really, you can be okay in the face of this. It's not that easy. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I quote you in my book, real life. I quote you in my books. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> I quote you from faith. Oh uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Go, but go ahead. Oh, yes, this is what I quote you saying. Grief and love are connected. If we push the mourning, the grief, the sadness away, we're also pushing the love away. By doing so, we are creating a much more constrained way of living. So can you say some more about that? Yeah, well, one of the, I, I think of it as a privilege of being a therapist, but that uh, um, over the years now, because it's been I've been doing it for a while, um, people have come in the aftermath of real, of terrible losses, you know, like terrible loss, children and spouses and parents and uh, their own illnesses and whatnot. Um, so grief, you, you know, um, what, what is grief really? And how, how difficult it can be just to allow it. Uh, and to allow it to take its own course, you, you know, not to superimpose, like I'm supposed to, I should be grieving this way, or it should be over now, or I thought it was over, but it now, but it, it's here again. And, and how do you, not experiencing enough of it, you know, just all the, all the ways that we get hung up around it. Um, and I've just been so up close to so to so much grief, and you, you know the operating premise that we talked about already for me as the therapist is trying to create that space that that I think we've talked about a lot already, where just be with what is, you know, and be with it how it is, you know, um, and. That's really let me see that love and grief, love and sadness, even love and anger, you know, love and jealousy, like that all those things are connected. And most of us are so conditioned or else or just so fearful of our own destructive potential, you know, that 
uh, that we're we're scared to let the so-called negative emotions, you know, the more difficult emotions, we're scared to to acknowledge them okay. uh, either in our own internal selves or even with a therapist or a loved one or we're scared we're you know um but to have faith that uh, things really will self-liberate if you give them the right kind of attention lets you see that it's not some negative part of you that's angry or sad or grieving you know that we don't have parts you know that there's only one of us and and that it's all connected you, you know so that the more we can open to the difficult feelings the more we can feel our own love uh, it, you, you know um that 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 I feel very confident about now so so I try to uh, without preaching about it, I, I try to um, uh, uh, let people know that maybe it's safe and, and maybe it, 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 you know, all this really is is about love, you know. It's beautiful. The thing that I always quote from you, from the beginning of your book about faith, where you're writing about your, your early emotional experience, you know, mm -hmm. um, Grow, growing growing up with losing your parents in, a, in a, all these horrible ways and then coming to meditation and finding that those negative self feelings you know were that if you gave them the right kind of attention that suddenly mm -hmm. they weren't definition of who yeah. you were you know yeah. Yeah, yeah. i mean you you using that was so generous of you sharon to put all that out there and so helpful to so many people so, well thank you to me included Thank you. It was, of course, a very difficult book to write and yet very important. And it was one of those experiences. I was compelled to write that book. Huh. You know, I had to write that book. And, uh, you know, my original publisher didn't like anything I was writing. I had to break that contract and find a new publisher. And Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it was just, and I didn't even know why, you know, or what I had to say. And it was only... Um, in, in that second process with my second contract that I signed a contract for an autobiographical treatment of faith in the Buddhist tradition. So right there, it became my story. Right. And, uh, I had a freelance editor who was helping me and we would have these conversations like, um, she'd say, well, isn't doubt like the opposite of faith? And I'd say, no, not really. Like the right kind of doubt, you know, and questioning and wondering and insisting on seeing the truth for yourself, all of that, I think really enhances faith. So, so what's the opposite of faith then? And I said, despair. Yeah. And she said, well, then you have to write a chapter on despair. And I said, I don't think so. I don't really want to. <laughs> Let's not go there. You know, but of course she was right. And I went there. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was a very important book for me to write. And so, yeah. So I, you know, I think that's going to last forever that book. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Now I have another one. <laughs> <laughs> may that one be as good <laughs> may it may it be so I mean that's the um, beautiful thing you know for an author in, in terms of these efforts it's like you just put it out there and you do the best you can to be authentic yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Uh, integrate it in your own presentation and you never know Yeah, yeah. I have a friend I had met her in a uh, conference some, you know somewhere and then 
we completely lost touch. And this was my first book, Loving Kindness. Uh, she she was in a bookstore and it fell on her head. <laughs> Just like fell off the shelf on her head. Yeah. So we got back in touch. And we've been friends ever since. And you think like, what's coming at me? You know, from what direction? You never know. <laughs> the power of the book. Power of the book. May it be so. <laughs> so thank you for all of your writing and all of your efforts and your uh, thinking without a thinker. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really been, uh, I mean, you've helped so many box, people. That's <laughs> so before we end our time together, is there a kind of practice or reflection you'd like to lead us in? Sure. You know, I've been very inspired by the, uh, uh, musician and composer John Cage. Uh, you've heard me talk about him before. Um, because he was one of the first to take non-musical sounds, supposed non-musical sounds, and try to see the music in, in them. Uh, so he's fa he's famous for a lot of things, but he's particularly famous for uh, a concert that he once gave that was four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Uh, which he gave in an outdoor amphitheater that's close to close to uh, where I'm speaking from. Um, so that was really the sounds of the audience and the sounds of nature and all the ambient sounds that became the concert, you know. Um, so uh, I found it can be a nice way to introduce people to meditation or to come at it from a slightly different angle instead of um, uh, using the breath or watching thoughts and so on, ju just to focus on sounds. So um, it, it's a little weird over the computer and so on, but but we could do it for uh, just for, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be four minutes and 33 seconds. Um, but if, um, uh, if, if people who are listening or watching could just uh, settle back into their uh, med meditative posture, and allow the body to be held by the cushion or the chair or the couch or where, where, wherever you're sitting. And then I really like this thing I once heard you say, Sharon, which is let, let the mind settle into the body the way the body is settled into the, into the cushion, into the chair. You probably said it better than me. So just allow yourself to be supported, to be held. And turn your attention to what we call in Buddhist psychology, the ear door, which is the portal, the portal in the body where the sounds enter. Just turn your awareness to whatever surrounds you in the way of sound. Silent or not. And let the sounds come and go as they will. You have no control over them, obviously.
Don't push away the unpleasant ones if there are any. Don't cling to the pleasant ones if there are any. And let yourself be with the neutral ones. Noticing anything that might come up in your mind that pulls you away from the ear door. Worries or fears, random thoughts, plans, leftover emotions, hunger, pains. Anything that distracts you, just notice, oh, that's that. But let yourself then return to whatever surrounds you in the way of sound. Almost like a sound bath. After dwelling in that space, bring yourself back so you can see Sharon, see me. And I know, speaking for myself, what, what a special opportunity this has been to be with Sharon again. I've loved teaching with for close on now, uh, uh, not quite 50 years. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to see you and hear you. And uh, I feel like I want to listen to this again and again, you know, to hear you, not me, but I hear myself enough. (laughs) (laughs) We all hear ourselves enough. It's a real, it's a tremendous joy um, spending time with you, Mark, and to learn more about his work, visit markepsteinmd.com, M-A-R-K-E-P-S-T-E-I-N-M-D.com, and go get a copy of The Zen of Therapy, wherever books are sold. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon's many different offerings, her courses, virtual classes, or to get a copy of Real Life, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Real Life series on the Meta Hour podcast, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And may you live with ease.